This is the LarryInFishers.com podcast. I'm Larry Lannon. I'm at the Pavilion Building next to the Amphitheater in downtown Fishers. And it's always an honor to have Fishers Mayor Scott Fadness on the podcast. Mayor, welcome again. Uh, welcome back from South Dakota, Larry. Always lo- enjoy uh, visiting my daughter's family out there. I had a grandson that turned three years old. Got a chance to visit with my nearly five-month-old granddaughter. So yeah, it's it was, a small uh, world, right? Because my sister lives in the same town as your daughter. And uh, it's it's a growing town. You yeah, know, it it's, is. Uh, Absolutely. I mean, Sioux Falls is more of a regional center, not a suburb. But there are similarities between a lot of young families in Sioux Falls, which is sort of the, the way we see it here. Yeah, absolutely. Well, let me ask you about this. We've got a number of things to talk about. Sure. Um, you released a statement to the Indianapolis Star about the controversies over the review of books in the teen section of the Fishers and Noblesville Libraries, the Hamilton East Library System. Before I get the discussion started, I will note for everybody, and I've written about this, the library board members are appointed by the county commissioners, county council, Noblesville School Board, Hamilton Southeastern School Board. Those are the institutions that make those appointments. That said, uh, the statement was brief, so I'm going to give you a chance to expand a little bit. Explain your views on the library board's policy about reviewing teen section books and really the news media firestorm that has resulted. You know, Larry, you you and I have chatted for a very long time, really since the start of my... uh my career in the city of Fishers, and, and um, I think you know this about me. I find myself most comfortable most days when people on the far left and people on the far right both are disgruntled with me <laughs> in some regard. Um, and I guess I, I, I've always taken, a, I guess, a degree of discipline and humility around things of cultural matters, you know, these cultural issues. And my statement is exactly how I feel about it and think about it is that when we start to take on these complex issues, these very difficult issues in our community that are emotionally charged, we have to be very intentional and very thoughtful and very inclusive in our conversations about it and how we come to the end outcome of a policy such as this. And I think we're in such a politically charged environment now where this pendulum is swinging. It swings from the left and then it swings from the right. But I, I still believe in, in the conversations that I have with most Fishers residents that they, they don't live on the far ends of those spectrums. They live in the middle. And what they really want is really thoughtful dialogue. You know, they want people to ponder and consider before taking action on some of these uh, issues. And so when we realized, or when they realized, I should say, that uh, there were a lot of Fishers residents upset about the policy, I was glad that they came to the conclusion that perhaps the smartest path forward is to take a deep breath, um, rethink this policy, and try to plot a course accordingly. You know, I'm not judging the parent or the family or the individual who worries about the content that is exposed to young children. I'm not, I'm not judging that, nor am I judging the person who believes fiercely in the independence and the access and the ability to go see any written word that they want to. I think we as elected officials, and this is a little unusual, right? You just mentioned this. This library board is a bit nebulous to me. I mean, it's a, it's a board that I have no connection to in the sense of I don't appoint anyone to the board. They're not elected to the board. But when you're in those roles, 
you have to be reflective of a diverse array of perspectives. And so, um, you know, I hope is my sincere hope over the coming days and weeks and months that they, um, they really discern that intersection between those, those two competing interests and find an answer and an answer that a diverse set of residents can take a degree of ownership in. Well, I've written about this, and, and, and my view is pretty clear, and, and I think it's not too far from yours. I find the library to be one of the great gems of this community for ours and for Noblesville. I was a fan of the library when I moved here in 1991. I had to go to Noblesville. When this building was built, my wife and daughters used it. My wife still uses it. I use, I, I, I'm a big fan of the reference section, and I use the Ignite space often to record uh, podcasts and, and, and for other uh, uh, events. What, I, what concerns me is, is this. The board itself has said that this is the only library system in the nation using this, this policy to review the entire teen section, which the staff says is going to take about a year. You know, sometimes it's good to be on the cutting edge, and sometimes it doesn't work out well. I mean, how would you feel this is working out, just yeah, from yeah. what you've seen? Well, clearly it's, it's not working out well. Um, by their own admission, I think they feel that there's flaws in the current policy. They said that, I think, just in the last three or four days, and there's even flaws in the implementation, according to some of them. So, um, yeah, I mean, you have to be, again, thoughtful about these things and intentional about it. And, uh, you know, as to your point about the library being a wonderful institution here in our city, I think it has been for years. I think our schools have been a wonderful institution here in our city. If we take a moment and we take the emotion out of it, and, and my staff will accuse me oftentimes of not having any emotions, um, but I, I do try to think of these things analytically and um, because it helps you to navigate emotionally charged issues. You had a point in time where perhaps people on the conservative side viewed the left as overstepping in their policies and their actions. Now, you can judge those whether you agree or not, but that was the perception. And so there was a concerted effort to say, not okay with that, okay? Now we're into a different chapter which says, well, wait a second, no, 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 now, now the right, now the left is saying the right, they're taking policies far, far, far too, far to the conservative side. And so we have this pendulum that swings back and forth and they both learn from one another. So they learn what activities motivate people, what activities um, connect with individuals, how do you get them to come out and, and voice their concerns and opinions. My fear is if you look, and I'm a local government geek, if you look historically where you see a lot of upheaval, upheaval and, and challenging times for a community is when you have these swings back and forth. You know, that's, that's usually not a good thing. And so my sincere hope, again, and I don't care if you're a conservative or a liberal or somewhere in the middle, these things must be thought through, they must be intentional, and we must be um, really, really thoughtful about our policies, especially when it comes to the cultural norms that we find in a world that seems to be changing at a rate that I think most people are struggling with. You know, I've only been to a few library board meetings, and, and what I have learned from those meetings about this policy, don't pretend to be an expert if read through what I can find on it, I would, my biggest worry, and again, I've written about this. I, I think that we have to find a way to come together. This is this is hurting an institution yeah. we all love in this in this in this community. 
But I always worried, what if one of these authors gets upset about the movement of the books? Well, it started with John Green. Right. He 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 actually used Fishers, but didn't talk about Noblesville. Right. <laughs> I'm aware. Fish- yeah, yeah I, I don't have to tell you yeah. that. So he came after Fishers, even though he could have gone after Noblesville as well. But, you know, he was concerned about the book moving. Now, there was an announcement over the weekend that one book of his was going to go back to the teen section. He's still not satisfied, says the whole policy needs to be looked at. Also, I saw somebody uh, that I have interviewed in the past. Uh, her name... Uh, is uh, Kelly Yang. She's a New York Times bestselling author. Spoke at the library. I had a chance to interview her. Wonderful lady. She's concerned about this too. She has been writing on social media about it. Here's why I'm, I'm what I'm leading up to. Both of those authors, and there could be more if this continues, are basically saying the library board needs to rescind the current policy. Do you think there is a way? that this can be settled where both sides could be satisfied? Well, exhaustively, no. I mean, there's always going to be people on the far right and far left that aren't going to be happy with it. And like I said before, I've spent the majority of my career living in that space. (laughs) Um, But I do think that there is the opportunity for a solution that provides far more of the community a part of that, the ownership of that solution. And a lot of times in these situations, what I've found has worked, Larry, is you bring the community together, and you, bring, you bring the diverse set of perspectives to the table, and you kind of give it to the community and say, okay, we tried our best with this policy. This is what we thought we were trying to do. It appears to be out of balance based on the feedback we're getting. Get a group of really smart, thoughtful residents together and say, come back to the board with some recommendations as to how you might see this be modified and so that people have some ownership in that policy. Uh, Because um, by doing that, I think you really kind of open this up for the community to have this dialogue, which is what this community needs is kind of a relief valve where we're not just having this us against them battle in these policy arenas. Instead, bring it out into the community and let thoughtful people that are not charged in that moment to really kind of chew through it and take your time. Before we leave this issue, yeah. anything else you want to say before we move on? Uh, you know, it's it's been disheartening uh, over the last several years, really, to see the uh, the amount of kind of big P politics and also small P politics that have entered into a community that for so long uh, was absent of that. You know, it was always the civic-minded business person or community member who said I'm really I'm not in this for political purposes I'm really just here because I want to make sure my community is the best that it possibly can be and somehow we have got to get back to that focus in our efforts on in all of our institutions um, so that Fishers can continue to be a place that everyone you know desires to be a part of and uh, and I still have a lot of optimism that we can get there i think these these moments are like they're chapters in time and you have to play the the long game uh to some degree but um you know and the other thing the discipline i've had over the last several years talk about this a lot with my communications team there isn't a week that goes by larry where i don't get petitioned by someone to make a statement about someone some issue some initiative they want me to to yell out about this, that, or the other thing. And I got to a point where I realized it's just 
more ammunition for a fire that's already stoked well enough. It is, it is unbelievable to me these cycles of outrage that are happening every couple days. It's as if there's people that are, have become addicted to this cycle of outrage. And, um, you know, we've been really disciplined at the city to say, look, you know, I'm not going to enter into every single one of these cycles of outrage to affirm or add ammunition to whatever, whatever you're pursuing. And so we've really tried to stay fairly disciplined and fairly focused on creating a great place to live, even in the midst of all this kind of chaos and noise. Moving from chaos and noise to budgets. Yeah, sure, yeah. Uh, a lot, not less exciting. Not less exciting in some ways, but budgets are priorities. And I think, uh, yeah. they, I mean, I think I geek out about them as well. As you know, I, yep. I, I think that it says a lot about a city when you put a budget together. Uh, you have sent a mailer out to local residents. I received one. And you touted something that I would expect you to doubt. The tax rate has held fairly steady. I've gone down a little bit in recent years. And you show a chart uh, that, that exemplifies that. So with that in mind, uh, uh, you'll be presenting uh, a budget proposal, at least in general terms, to the city council soon. Uh, from this day, we're, we're recording this on, on August 15th. Uh, just kind of for the public's benefit, explain what your spending priorities are for 2024. Yeah, you know, this is probably one of the more exciting budgets from my perspective. One... We're able to reduce the tax rate yet again for the third year. So we're almost down to 2020 or 2019 municipal tax rates, which I think is is a good sign. Uh, but secondly, we're in a strong financial position as a city, and we've been really disciplined financially over the last several years to build up cash in order to invest in things that we think are important for the community. And so we're, we're going to have your traditional budget, which is basically – Here's how many additional police and fire we're going to bring on, and we are going to be making some significant investments in those areas. Um, we're going to be doing a lot of road work as as usual, but then we started having this dialogue internally about okay, we have built up a lot of cash. Some of that was from that Carmel legislation, so we had kind of one-time money, if you will. And we, if you, I think you were in attendance at some of these finance committee meetings where we talked about okay. You know, we know it's one-time money. Let's be thoughtful about how we approach spending that. Well, we're now at a point where we're going to be rolling out a plan this year that really focuses on um, trails and sidewalk connectivity, uh, kind of basic infrastructure, really talk about investing and strengthening our, our, um, our neighborhoods uh, is another key component of that. And then obviously public safety being a, a third component of it. So um, you're going to see some pretty innovative and some pretty exciting uh, proposals on Monday, I think, that can really move the needle literally from the minute a person walks out their front door all the way through to our to, to the broader community. So I'm, I'm pretty excited about it and look forward to kind of sharing that with everyone. Interesting that I saw an article about Carmel being upset about the income tax distribution. Sounds like a familiar argument. Yes, yeah, they're not they're not thrilled. But you know, as I told Mayor Brainerd, my job is to advocate for the taxpayers of Fishers, and um, and it's been long overdue. So we're we're glad to receive those funds finally. I want to talk about another mailer that you've sent out to citizens. I received one of those as well, and I just live a few blocks from. State Road 37 and 141st Street, uh, that interchange, currently a right-in, right-out, east-west on 141st. Now, I've written about this several times, and the city is adamant 
There will be a roundabout east-west construction. There'll be an underpass so things uh, that the traffic can uh, flow freely on 37. But what I, I continue to find, and I find it among my neighbors, I find it among yep. people who contact me, they are skeptical that that's ever going to happen. Right. It has been delayed. So um, what I would ask you to do is to sort of tell the story of what has been going on at that interchange and, and where the city goes from here. Well, yeah, so I think there's a couple things happening here. One, it has been delayed, and we can kind of talk through those issues. Two, it's, you know, it's political season, so that's always an opportunity for people to kind of weaponize these types of conversations. Um, State Road 37 will be done. We plan on bidding it in May. Um, there is, there were very legitimate considerations about the fact that 146 in Aliceville, anyone that's driven through there in the last two or three months, realizes that's a very disruptive construction site and it's only gonna get more disruptive. I mean, they haven't really even started the full construction there yet. So doing that at the same time as 141st and 37 just did not make sense uh, to me and others from a traffic perspective. And, um, and so we wanna, we're aligning the start of 141st and 37 to dovetail off of when 146 in Allisonville really kind of slows down in terms of construction. We have every intention to build it. Uh, we plan on moving forward as soon as we uh, as soon as we can. And again, right now we're scheduled. I believe it's late April or early May. Uh, we plan to bid that and build it. And we we did send out a letter again, just because in the world of kind of rumors and misinformation and political motivations, it's like nope. Let me reaffirm again, and I will say it again here: we are building 141st and 37. It is uh, being bid in April, and I apologize for the delay. It was all for the best of intentions, and uh, hopefully we can get that done here shortly. Well, I mean, it should be pointed out the first set of bids were, were, were way, way were over way, budget. Way over budget. We were able to value engineer 5 or $6 million out of that. We, there was utility work that needed to be done that hadn't been done yet at the sewer, the sewer line that goes across there. So we were able to get that done. That'll speed up the construction process. So there, were, there was rationale then, and then once we delayed it and we saw how quickly 146 and Allison, they were going to kick that off, just didn't want to create complete traffic gridlock in the northwest side of Fishers. I have done my best to stay away from Ellisonville Road. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, yeah, it, and it, it got a little better handle on the MOT, but, I mean, it's just a big project. I mean, I it's mean, a I, big project. And I did a, a podcast well before it, and all the county officials were clear it was going to be disruptive. So Absolutely. Everybody uh, was at least warned as best we could. It's one of those things, uh, the short-term pain, long-term gain sort of thing. Yeah. Um, you've just wrapped up the first summer season at Geist Waterfront Park. Uh, Tell me, uh, just a couple of weeks at the time we record this left in the summer season, uh, how's this first summer season going? It was good. Um, we learned a lot uh, operationally. I think Jake and Marissa, the team kind of leading the charge there, I think we learned a lot uh, about how to operate that facility, You know how to maintain the water quality. Um, we're still uh, we're working on building out the trails. That's still underway. So that's uh, – and then landscaping-wise, you know, the first year – it looks good, but it's going to look better every year as a lot of the vegetation matures. So, uh, But all in all, I mean, I heard a lot of positive feedback from an awful lot of families that went out there and enjoyed it. I think in terms of the amount of people that went out there, it's going to grow over time. Um, what's fascinating is over 13,000 people downloaded the app, the app to sign up to go access the park. Obviously... We didn't see 13,000 people a day out there, 
Um, but I think it shows an interest and a curiosity, and I think people will kind of build towards that. It reminds me a lot of the Agra Park when we first opened that. You know, it was a slow population start, and then every year it's doubled. So we're gonna we're gonna monitor that and uh, see what kind of growth we have uh, coming up next year. I asked uh, Marissa Decker right before Spark Fishers how many people had paid the $50 out-of-town yeah. parking fee. She said very few. Most people from out of town, if they did access the park, like got dropped off and picked up. Or yeah. They found a way around it, but so there weren't that many people who paid yeah. it. Is and that still the case? I, I assume so. I haven't okay. heard recently. But I think also, Larry, like we said, I think when we had this big debate at uh, city council, I said, this, it's not a constitutional amendment. You know, we can... We can reevaluate, and I'm sure our team will reevaluate what the appropriate fees and charges are, like we do every year with all of those. And if they feel like, for instance, one of them was I think you had to have a 48-hour notice ahead of buying the ticket. Maybe that comes away. Maybe they reduce the price. I don't know. But I assume we'll evaluate all that this fall, kind of do an after-action report, and then get ready for the upcoming year. Let me move on to the event center because there was an interesting uh, piece in the Indianapolis Star recently by John Tui. And he wrote a, his piece basically centered around uh, the event center for Fishers on the one in Noblesville where we have the hockey team, they have the minor league basketball team. The article quoted some independent experts, and they seem that I'll use the word wary of having enough events to keep the venues busy and, and, and uh, in business. Um, they, they didn't say it wouldn't work. They said yeah. they, were, they were concerned there was going to be enough here uh, in this area to, to sustain both of those venues. Um, so my question uh, to you is, you, you've been very confident there'll be no problem with that. You think there's going to be enough demand for events for our center, at least. Uh, uh, you're still confident about that? I am. I just actually had a meeting on this uh, with the ASM management team. They were in, in my office with Deputy Mayor Hulkerin, and we had a good conversation. Look, these, are, these venues are not easy to run. It's, it's not a slam dunk. But when you put the right team together and you put them in the right location and you build the right type of facility, they can be uh, really an attraction to your community and can attract amazing talent. And I, th I still believe the fundamental recipe is there. Um, we're going to have some exciting announcements this fall uh, leading up to, to the opening next fall uh, of some momentum builders, I think. And I, I feel very confident that people are going to be very excited about the lineup we put up in front of them. I think it's going to be world-class. And another exciting thing today is the first, uh, steel went up, uh, at the arena, uh, today. So I drove by there and there is actually the building starting to go vertical. So we're, we're well on our way. And, uh, you know, with chicken and pickle right next to the facility, and we're working on some other development around there. I, I still, fundamentally believe this is going to be a um, grand slam for our Fishers residents. The other part of the, the, the TUI story told the story of Fort Wayne, that uh, Fort Wayne did a feasibility study and decided not to build a center. Of course, they have a coliseum already there, and, and the idea was they weren't, most of the, of the events were going to be at the, that were not uh, related to it, let's say the Mad Ants at that time, would most of those, venue, the venue would be the Coliseum, but most of those acts would want to go there. And so I'm not saying it's the same thing at all, but you and, 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 and Noblesville chose not to do a feasibility study. And I want to give you a chance to explain why you didn't think there was a need to do that. Well, we had done, oh boy, in my time frame, there'd been at least two or three feasibility studies done back in the day. Um, we chose not to do another one because, and that it was 
I mean, it was five or seven years old, but nothing had changed in the market in terms of venues in that time frame. So we really didn't find the need to, to do that. And then frankly, having an anchor tenant like the Indy Fuel also led us to a degree of confidence that you got 36 home games as well as uh, hopefully playoffs. So having an anchor tenant certainly helped versus a speculative, I'm just going to build this and hope to generate um, venue. And then honestly, I think too, talking to the industry leaders out there, uh, we got a lot of feedback about the size of the facility was really important. And I think we found a niche market in this you know, 7,500 seat uh, sweet spot. And then I think we just, I would like to think that we came up with this timing. I think it was a little bit more luck than skill. Um, the, this kind of desire by Fisher's residents to have proximity to things, like the toleration, it's amazing to me, the toleration Fisher's residents have anymore for having to travel a long ways or spend time in the car to go to something. It's just, it's shrinking by the day. They really don't have a desire to work somewhere a long ways away, to go recreate somewhere. I mean, it's, I want everything in close proximity to me, which if you think about it a decade ago, there was a high toleration from, you're gonna commute two hours a day to work. You're gonna, if you're gonna go out at night, you're gonna drive an hour to go out. You talk to Fisher's residents now and that's not their desire any longer. And I think COVID, it was already underway, but I think COVID accelerated it. And for all the terrible things that happened during COVID, there were other insights that people got about themselves that said, you know what? I don't really like the lifestyle I had before. And it fundamentally changed how they lived. And I think that actually fell nicely into the plans that we had to say, well, you know what? We're gonna do all those things that are in close proximity to your home. And so I really think the, the idea met the moment, so to speak, and I think it'll be successful. Well, I think the, the big example of that is, is getting people to come back to the office. People like working in their yeah. homes. You know, I, I'm retired from the federal government, but I volunteer to help out an employee organization. And uh, the president wants people to go back to the offices. The employees are saying, we don't want to go back. Right. And you know this, you're in a competitive market for employees, just like yes. the federal government is on a different scale. You know, you have to consider... You know, the balance, and the, I think what's happening is at least, okay, you can come into the office so many days a week, Correct. be at home so many days a week. You have some kind of a hybrid uh, situation. I mean, that Mondays seems to be and the Fridays most common. in downtown Indy are pretty slow <laughs> because I think they can probably compromise to get them in Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. But Monday, Friday, I think a lot of people are working from home. And I made this comment the other day to a group. I went to lunch the other day in downtown Fishers, and I was sitting up at the bar having lunch, and I looked to my left and right, and this is like a Tuesday at 1230, right? And um, it was chock full of men and women uh, in shorts and T-shirts with their laptops drinking at like a beer, mm -hmm. you know? Now, in the past, if you would have said pre-COVID, if I would have went to a lunch place at 1230, um, you would not find a bunch of grown adults in shorts and flip-flops with their laptops there. It just wouldn't be there, you know? And so it has fundamentally changed uh, what's happening in our community. Any final comments uh, before we wrap this podcast? I don't, 
I don't believe so. It's good to see you. It's the first time I think you've ever had no comment at well, the end I mean, of a you know, podcast. I, have lots, I mean, I have lots of comments, but I'm afraid it'll lead to a whole other okay, course of conversation. Enough. So I, I want to be respectful of your time. Well, I think about you and your family every time I go to South Dakota. Well, it's you the lesser talks. state. You know that, right? Well, North I'm, Dakota is North your home. North Dakota is my home. Yes. But South Dakota is a close cousin. Yes. And South Dakota, you know, I, one thing about South Dakota, and I have traveled uh, many rural areas of Indiana. Uh, South Dakota rural is a whole different kind of rural. Yeah, <laughs> you can go out there, a it? long way and not see anybody. But it's a lovely state. I, I enjoyed, obviously enjoy visiting yeah. there. And it's always a, an honor and a pleasure to have Scott Fadness on my podcast. Thanks so Thanks, much for buddy. joining me.